All right, let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to start a little early again because I, as I was looking at stuff this week, I, I started adding more stuff like I always do. Uh, first of all, we have plenty of plenty more sandwiches, so please get more sandwiches. And then Stephanie is planning on putting any leftover sandwiches in Ziploc bags, and you should take some home. Okay, yes. So. If you're too embarrassed to go back for seconds or thirds, you can grab them on the way out and eat them in the car on the way home. So, right? Also, um, I, I don't know if anybody's ever been through something like this. I, Jackie and I are getting ready to go on vacation, and it's really weird because um, I, I can't remember a time where I, I've left for vacation, or get ready for, to leave for vacation, and I don't feel like I need a vacation from work, from the church. I'm. I, I am so excited about what's going on. We had our first preaching collective for this uh, new series that we're going to start on July 3rd. We want a king. It's just fantastic. I'm, I don't want to leave work, but I do need a vacation from banks, insurance companies, the billing departments at healthcare providers, the government. Anybody else need a vacation from all of that? <laughs> Works fine. Works, yeah. Works fine, but the rest of life is just like, can I go somewhere? So I, I, what I understand is that they don't have banks, insurance companies, uh, healthcare providers, or government in Wisconsin. So that's why we're going up there. So, anyway. uh, last week we talked. I talked a lot about um, God's sovereignty, and you see that in here. Um, and I wanted to pull a little bit more out uh, from, I mentioned it, I just mentioned it last week, but I want to pull a little bit more out of it, because I love the way stuff like this fits together. Um, so, in 1 Samuel 15, which was part of last week, Saul has to lead the Israelites against one of their enemies, the Amalekites. I said that, that they were led by King Amalek. That's not right. I always do that. His name was Agag. Yeah, King Agag. Anyway, so I got the name right now. Anyway, so Saul is given very specific instructions from the Lord that the Amalekites are horrible sinners and they need to be completely wiped out. And, and not, you got to kill the king. You can't, save, you can't save the king. That always used to be a big thing is you'd save the king and then, you know, you'd do stuff with him. But you also... Any of their spoils of war, you couldn't take, he said, you can't take anything. You can't take any of their gold or silver. You can't take any of their livestock, not even one lamb, not one, one goat, you know. Well, what does Saul do? He spares King Agag, spares his life, eventually lets him go. And he also takes spoils of war. He takes sheep, land, you know, all of this stuff. And, and so Samuel comes up after the battle and he says... Uh, and, and Saul runs up to him and said, I have followed the Lord's instructions. And it's one of the great lines in the Bible. And Samuel says, well, then what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the cattle that I hear? You know? and, and they get into this argument. And then I read the little, uh, the little bit where, where Samuel says to Saul, uh, do you think God uh, values sacrifices above obedience? And that's when Saul finally repents, but it's too late by then. God's already. Anyway, here's why this is important, and this is why it points to God's sovereignty and the importance of our obedience to God as well. 
Agag lives, Saul lives. 500 years later, we have the story of Esther. And two of the main characters in the story of Esther, Esther's obviously the main character, but two other main characters are Mordecai, Esther's uncle, and Haman, who many people have compared to Hitler. Okay, he was the first Hitler. He hated the Jews. The reason he hated the Jews was because Haman was from the line of Agag. He was, he was a descendant of Agag. If Agag had been killed, there would have been no Haman, and there would have not been this plot to uh, wipe out through a genocidal maniac, Haman, the nation of Israel in, in um, what is modern-day uh, Iran right now, okay, in Persia. Because Mordecai is a, is a, uh, was a descendant of Saul. So this, this battle between Agag and Saul, five, you've heard of the Hatfields and McCoys, you've heard that. Okay, this is the original Hatfields and McCoys. This is Agag and Saul. 500 years later, you still have Haman upset. So, so God is saying, look, you've got to do this because even 500 years later, it will save your people, Saul. But Saul's like, yeah, but I know better. I'm going to let him, let him live, and I'm going to take some of the spoils of war. That's a problem. God knows better than we do. But then, here you go. God knew this was going to happen, and so what did God do? If you read the book of Esther, you see that God, even 500 years later, provided a solution for the problem in Esther, the problem of Haman going to kill um, all of the Jews in Persia. So he figured that out because he's sovereign. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the choices we're going to make. He's got it figured out, but we still have this ability to make these decisions and, and have this agency. It's chaotic how it fits together. It's hard to understand sometimes, but I think that's a beautiful picture over the course of five centuries of this idea of our agency, God's sovereignty, and the need to obey God. So. As I've said, we're trying to be helpful uh, for this series that starts in another couple of Sundays. Um, tonight we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 20 through 2 Samuel 12. And right out of the gate, I have a question for you. I'm, so I'm adding a question. There's four questions that we're supposed to ask of the text. And I'm adding a fifth question. And here it is. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have a Nathan in your life? Somebody who has permission to speak into your life about your blind spots, about the things that need correction, who's doing it firmly, but doing it out of love, and making sure that you're making course corrections. And uh, Jackie is a tremendous Haman in my, uh, not Haman, but Nathan. <laughs> I wonder if I should rewind the... <laughs> Tremendous Nathan in my life, and I do have, I do have others. And by the way, it's not easy. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm just like anybody else. Uh, a Nathan comes in and says, "Hey, buddy," and I'm like, "Well," <laughs> you know, just like we all do. But, but it's important to have that. So, uh, I'm going to review some things, make some observations, point out some potentially pr provocative details, and try to set some context. And again, a lot of this stuff is going to feel like a little bit random, so I'm covering 20 chapters in 20 minutes. So, Coming off last week, Saul is king, but, but God is unhappy with his disobedience, and so David has been chosen. So right after 1 Samuel 15, we have 1 Samuel 16, where David gets chosen and anointed as the king in waiting. And tonight is about the tenuous relationship between Saul and David, 
It's also about David's transition to king, and it's not a smooth transition. It's a seven-year transmission that, that, that a couple of three or four chapters uh, in the Bible cover. I would think, maybe you would think, it would be a smooth transition because God picked David, anointed David. Why wouldn't it be a smooth transition? Well, people, you know. And then it's also about David's early, successful, and violent years of reign. There was a lot of violence in, early on in David's reign, as well as later. And then his descent into one of his biggest mistakes, which would be in 1 Samuel 11, or 2 Samuel 11, which is the whole David and Bathsheba and uh, Uriah. I say it's one of his biggest mistakes. Many people just assume it's his biggest mistake. I would argue it's not his biggest mistake. Maybe it's second, maybe third. But he made other mistakes that were actually way more costly than this mistake. Although this seems to be the story that everybody likes to, to hear about. When Later on in David's life, when he takes a census against God's will, he takes a census, and that costs 70,000 Israelite lives. So that was way more costly than what he did with Bathsheba. But, but I want you to hear this. David's... David's reign uh, was filled with the transition wasn't smooth. Uh, his reign had some good parts. It also had some bad parts. I want you to consider just because God calls you to something, it doesn't mean that you're out of his will when it gets hard. It doesn't mean you're out. If you think God is calling me to this, I'm going to go do this. Now it's hard or I must have missed God's will. This must have been a mistake. I, I went through the wrong open door. Just because it gets hard doesn't mean you're not still in God's will. God has never promised to just take us out of situations, but he has promised to walk through situations with us. And part of our growth as believers is to go through some tough stuff. Also, just because God calls you to something and you're having success, it doesn't mean you can let your guard down with regard to sin, ethics, and wisdom, which is what every one of these three first kings did. Saul, David, Solomon. And finally... Just because God calls you to something, it doesn't mean that you don't need a Nathan in your life. Actually, it means you, it means you need a Nathan because, because if you're doing God's work, you need to surround yourself with people who are going to be able to speak into your life uh, in, a, in a helpful and prophetic way. So chapter 21, right out of the gate, it, I, th there's some irony here. I mean, you know I love irony. Um, David says to a priest who's who's, uh, David's on the run with, you know, three or four hundred men, and the priest is offering him the, the opportunity to get his men kind of hooked up with some women, you know, and David says, I never allow my men to be with women when they are on a military campaign. Now, does anybody see the irony there? <laughs> I don't allow any of my men to be with women when they're on a military campaign. Fast forward to 2 Samuel 11. There's a military campaign going on, and what does David do? Oh, look at that chick down there. Hey, bring her up here. And then he tries to get Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, to sleep with, it, with, um, with her while Uriah's supposed to be on a... And, and Uriah, what does he do? He says, I, I, there's no way I'm going to go and sleep with my wife when all my comrades are out on this military campaign. So that's got to be a dagger to David, too, in the midst of his sin. So then David decides to kill Uriah, okay? And then we find out for, um, that for much of the latter chapters of 1 Samuel, while David is in exile from Saul, 
some of Israel's enemies, at times graciously helped David. It's weird, including the Philistines who David killed Goliath, the greatest Philistine to ever live. He kills him, and yet the Philistines are helping him on occasion. Uh, so, and then also for much of the latter chapters of 1 Samuel, David is kind of going back and forth between running from Saul, but also fighting Israel's enemies at some point. So he's, he's running from Saul, the king of Israel who's trying to kill David, and yet David is still serving the king who's trying to kill him by, by fighting Israel's enemies. Very strange. And then David has a primo opportunity to kill Saul in a cave, but he doesn't. Rather, he uses the experience to argue to Saul that he's not a threat to Saul. So he cuts a little bit off his cloak, goes to him, says, see, I had a chance to kill you. So Saul understands and relents for the time being. He Even at one point during that conversation, he says, David, you're a better man than I am. And even as Saul re- relents for a time, his reign is still tainted. And of course, he only relented for a time. Eventually, he gets mad at David again and starts to try to kill him. Then there's the whole narrative with Nabal and Abigail. So Nabal's the husband, Abigail's the wife. Um, anybody know what the name Nabal means? Stupid, idiot, idiot, fool. Yes. And he was a stupid, idiot, fool. Okay. And Abigail's like, what do I do with this guy? You know? Any? No, you don't have to raise your hand. Okay. Uh, But it's a great narrative that helps show why godly wives with discernment, wisdom, and patience are important. I can't tell you how many times I have been... Nabal to Jackie's Abigail in my life. Any of you guys identify with that? Wheeler? Wheeler? Okay. Um, the, the only difference there, though, is that, at least not yet, I have not been struck down the way Nabal was. And I'm just praying that that doesn't happen to me. So what was Nabal's biggest problem? Pride. Same as with Saul. Okay. So David looks at the Nabal story. David had an opportunity to take Nabal out himself decides not to, says God's going to take care of it his way, and that's exactly what happens. And so then he proclaims after Nabal is, is taken out, he says God handled it the way he wanted it to be handled. That always reminds me of Romans chapter 12, 17 through 21. Let me read it to you. Paul writes, repay no one evil for evil. And believe me, Nabal was evil to David. He, David had every right to take him out, but he didn't do it. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's in Deuteronomy and in Isaiah. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So that little part there, if you, if you do good to those who do evil to you, you're going to heap burning coals on... So people go, okay, cool, something really bad's going to happen to them. No, that's not what he's saying. It was a cultural thing back then that if somebody offended somebody else with a sin and then decided to repent of the sin... They would actually put a, a, a plate. You know, they could walk around with plates on their heads way better than any of us could. They would put a plate of burning coals on their head, and then they would walk around in the city or the town square 
And that was a symbol or a sign or um, a message of repentance. They're, they're repenting publicly. They're confessing their sin and repenting publicly. So what Paul is saying is that by overcoming evil with good, what you're doing is you're giving the person an opportunity to repent without it being too terribly shameful. That's what he's saying. He's saying it doesn't work all the time. But if you, if you just start the down, negative downward spiral of returning evil for evil, you never have that opportunity for somebody to go, you know what, I think I need to repent and confess. Okay? So that's what's going on there. And yet, even though David sees how, uh, this important truth, he then goes off and commits polygamy. And how? Now, David's not in Solomon's league. Only Wilt Chamberlain is in Solomon's league. But nevertheless... This is a great example. David is a great example. He ended up with seven or eight wives. This is a great example of how even godly people can be captivated by culture. So I'm sure everybody had a grandmother at one time who told you, just because everybody else is doing it, it doesn't make it right. Right? Okay. Um, Eventually Saul comes back around to hunting David. Saul simply cannot get out of his own way. Anybody in here have that problem? You just can't get it. Yeah, I, I got issues with that too. So meanwhile, Samuel dies. That's important to know because right as Samuel's dying, Saul as king bans all mediums in the nation. Do you know what a medium is? Okay. It's not between small and large. A medium is like... You, Anybody ever gotten, you don't have to raise your hand, a seance. So it's, you go to a seance and the person calls up the dead. That's what a medium, so Saul says, no mediums. Can't go to a medium. You could be killed, you could be executed if we find out that you're going to a medium or if you are a medium. So then what does Saul do? He goes to a medium. (laughs) Yeah, he does. And who's he trying to call up? Samuel. So he misses Samuel. Okay, so here you go. You probably heard a lot of this with the political situation uh, lately. This whole idea of rules for thee, but not for me, right? Have you heard that saying? Rules for thee, not for me. And, and it's said in a really accusatory... Okay. It, like, this is something new. Okay, rules for thee and not for me has been around for thousands and thousands of years. We're human beings. We're going to keep doing the same thing. So, when Samuel does come up with the medium, here's my summary paraphrase of what he says to Saul. Saul, you're an idiot. Why are you bothering me? (laughs) That's essentially what he says to him. Okay. And 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul and two of his sons in a battle with the Philistines. It's very, very sad. But now the long and difficult and violent transition to David's reign. Chapter 1, David. In chapter 1, David kills a messenger who brings him bad news. That just is odd to me, you know. The messenger brings bad news. David says, eh, I don't like the news. I'm killing you. Okay. Also, by the way, if you've ever heard the saying, how, oh, how the mighty have fallen, that's in 2 Samuel chapter 1. So that's a biblical saying. Nothing is original. You're not original. I'm not original. Nobody's original. Hollywood's not original. Okay. Chapter 2, David does not, become, uh, does not automatically become king over all of Israel. Ishbosheth, a surviving Saul's son, also claims to be king. So there's a divided kingdom for a little while. There's uh, a couple of chapters of real tension and battle. Um, if you're a close reader and you've seen the movie Fight Club, you kind of read about the Field of Swords, and it's like, oh, that's the original Fight Club, so that's where they got that idea from. Okay, nothing new under the sun. Um, 
And it's a violent, sad, and emotional seven-year transition for David to become, become king of all. Chapter 3 reads like a soap opera. Even Nick brought this up. It just reads like a soap opera. And chapter 3 and chapter 12 of 2 Samuel uh, are two of the most emotional chapters of Scripture for me. Every time I read them, my heart is deeply sad and troubled. So in chapter 3, Abner is accused. Abner is like Ishbosheth's right-hand man. And Ishbosheth gets mad at him and accuses Abner of sexual sin, which Abner did not do. Abner gets offended, gives Ishbosheth a piece of his mind, and then he kind of switches teams. He becomes a double agent. So he goes to David and he arranges to give Ishbosheth's part of the kingdom over to David. So he makes a deal with David. Meanwhile, David says, I'm only going to accept this deal if I get my first wife, Michael, back. So Michael helped him escape Saul the first time. Michael is Saul's daughter, David's first wife. Uh, Michael helped David escape Saul, and then she stayed with Saul. She stayed with her father and did not go with David on his, on his exile and his military campaign. So David says, and now she's still living in this separated part of the kingdom. And so while she's living there in this separated part of the kingdom... She ends up marrying another guy. And this guy really loves her. He really loves her. So, reading about Michael's other... This is in scripture. Read it. Chapter 3. Reading about Michael's other husband losing her to David makes me cry. I mean, it's really sad. Because I I think about if I lost Jackie in a similar way. It just makes me sad. But then, second thing is, I, I would argue that... I, I think later on, David maybe, maybe regretted asking for Michael back. Because she gets a little snippy with him about his dancing. Have you read this? Okay, he's dancing to the Lord. And she's like, why are you doing it? You look like an idiot. Okay. Girls. What? She was saying you were dancing to the girls. And he was like, no, I was dancing to the Lord. She also just didn't, she didn't like his style of dancing, though. There's, there, I mean, it's like... Yes, Elaine Bennis. It's the original Elaine Bennis dance. Okay. So Abner makes all these arrangements. And then Abner is murdered at the end of chapter 3 due to a years old grudge. A murder that David did not authorize. I mean, it's a wild chapter. It is a wild chapter. In chapter 4, we learn of Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. So this is Saul's grandson. And we learn that... uh, we learn of him. And then we learn that David kills another messenger who has bad news. Second time that David does this, I am very glad that I am not a kingdom or government messenger. I'm very glad for that. And then chapter 6 makes a guy named Uzzah famous. Anybody remember why? Say it. So they're carrying the ark and the ark starts to fall and he grabs the ark to keep it from falling and God says, mm-mm. Smites him. Okay. Um, and then chapter 6, we, by the way, that whole ark story, uh, what's that question? Does this, does this confuse you or make you wonder about God? Yeah, okay. So, yeah, that's, there you go. It's kind of weird. Anyway, also in chapter 6, we get the story of Michael's contempt for David's dancing to the Lord. So, uh, this is a problem. And by the way, this does not end well for Michael. David says, all right, I'm done with you. And then she becomes barren, can't have children. Okay. Chapter 6 is also the inspiration for 
the great David Crowder praise song. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, sing it with me. I will dance, I will sing to be mad for my king. Nothing, Lord, is, is hindering this passion in my soul. Come on! <laughs> I will dance, I will sing to be mad for my king. Nothing, Lord, is hindering this passion in my soul. And I'll become even more undignified than this. Some will say it's foolishness, and I'll be... I'm going to keep singing until you join in, okay? Na-na-na-na-na-na! Hey! Na-na-na-na-na-na! Hey! We're going to do this song on a Sunday morning. It's old. It's like 20 years old, maybe? Yeah, okay. On we go. All right. 2 Samuel 7 is the backstory of the temple. Things begin to go really well for David. He's firmly ensconced now as king overall. Israel's enemies are constantly being defeated. David does a beautiful thing. He honors and blesses Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. And humility marks David's life and character for the time being. But a couple of quick non-sequitur questions before I wrap this up. Don't you love Old Testament names? I was, I was reminded of the name Shobab as I was reading through this. Shobab. What a great name. If Jackie and I ever had another kid, and it was a boy. First of all, that would be quite a story. But, um, uh, but if it was a boy, I think I'd name him. I want to name him Shobab. That was Shobab Switzer. That would be cool. And then, and then here's, the, here's the other thing. I keep reading about how they had these military campaigns of twenty or 30,000 soldiers. How did they do the supply lines back then for that many soldiers? You ever thought about that? I'm like, how did they do that? Seems weird. Anyway, and then finally, chapter 11, what I call Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death chapter. Okay, anybody read the book Amusing Ourselves to Death? Good for you, Tabitha. It's a fantastic book. It was written in 1986. It's more applicable today than it was in 1986. You should read this book. It's a clap. Wheeler, you ever read this book? <laughs> Elder. Okay, anyway. So David, like so many others before him and since, he falls into the trap of success, affluence, and a life that's on cruise control. David has several wives. Apparently, it's not enough for him. He commits murder to cover up adultery. How original is that? Okay. Um, have you heard the saying, in politics, the cover-up is always much worse than the first sin? Think Watergate. If Nixon had just come out right from the very beginning and said, yeah, these guys are taping this stuff. And, you know, by the way, he won 49 out of 50 states. I don't even know why he was spying on the Democrats. But the cover-up is always worse than the first sin. And it's interesting, David's dismissiveness when he is told of Uriah's death, which he arranged. And he's just sort of dismissive. And chapter 11 ends ominously. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. That's an understatement, I think. So enter Nathan. He's a prophet. He's a friend of David's. Proverbs says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. But we really don't believe that, do we? We just want our friends to give us affirmation and adulation. We prefer affirmation therapy, you know. But Nathan is brilliant. 
Uh, we think of parables as being something that Jesus uses in the New Testament, which he does, 30-something parables in the New Testament. What we don't realize is that there's four or five parables in the Old Testament as well. And Nathan uses a parable on David. He goes to him and says, hey, we've got a problem in the kingdom. There's this really rich guy living next to this really poor guy. The really poor guy finally saved up enough money to buy a little ewe lamb. And he's treating it like one of his children, and he loves it, and it sleeps with him, and all this stuff. So a traveler came to the rich man's house and said, hey, can I stay the night? and Can I be fed? So the rich man goes and kills the poor man's one lamb. He's got thousands of lambs, but he goes and kills the poor, uh, the poor man's one lamb and serves it to uh, his traveler. And, and David says, you got to find this guy and we got to execute him. We got to prosecute him. And Nathan looks at David and he goes, Haishata, that's the Hebrew. You the man. <laughs> you are the man. And David's like, oh, wow. And so that's how Nathan brings that to his attention. And then you finally you think about what God says to David in, in the wake of all this. God says to David, you did this with Bathsheba and Uriah in secret. But now what will happen to you is going to be made very public. Okay? You see, sin is never hidden from God. Chapter 12 also ends very strangely for me again I just I love some of these details so chapter 12 ends David uh, defeats uh, an enemy and gets the crown of the king of the people he defeated anybody remember how much the crown weighs 75 who's wearing a crown that weighs 75 pounds what kind of massive ego do you have to have to wear a is this, is this, I'm seriously, I'm at, is this like a metaphor for the, for the weight of leadership? Okay, I don't, I don't get it. Who's, like, ah, uh, 70 pounds, not enough for my crown. I really need 75, okay? This is like original CrossFit, I think, for kings, all right? So, anyway, it makes me glad I'm not a king. So, have fun tonight. Nick, uh, Nick's going to give you a little instruction and we'll do our thing, so. I would have thought you would have brought a team of rivals with Nathan. Like, you've got to have people. That's true. Yeah. That, are. that was a great book. Team of Rivals. So, that's another book. So, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death and Team of Rivals. Uh, the definitive Lincoln biography. Yeah. Uh, he mentions uh, phrases that come up first in the Bible. The one that I found, or maybe it's not, I imagine it's the first time, is fell on his sword when Saul... Uh, it said Saul fell on his sword. And now, you know, I hear that. You, that is a saying that you hear a bunch. Again, my name is Nick. I think most of us are here for the second time. But if you're new, this portion we're going to do now a little bit of discussion, interaction. As Frank mentioned, there are four, now five questions. Next week, there'll be six. We'll add one each week. Um, what stood out to you? Was there anything confusing or troubling? Did anything make you think differently about God? How might this change the way we live. And we'll do it similar to last time, which is which we'll um, work in our groups for the first question, get up, try to meet someone new, do the second one, and then probably come back together for the third and fourth and talk about who is your Nathan or maybe who could be your Nathan if you don't have a Nathan. I joked that my Nathan is my five-year-old son, Michael. He likes, yeah. to, say, he likes to say things like, Dad, it's 
speed limit's 45, but you're going 50. Like, what's, what's going on? <laughs> or, Dad, why aren't both of your hands on the steering wheel? Uh, so I get, a, I get a lot of that. Um, so uh, you might need to introduce yourself first. Um, again, remember, for the first question, we try to do a little bit talking chip style. So uh, consider how many times you're contributing to the conversation. Give somebody else a chance to contribute to the conversation. And think about what stood out to you this week. Frank talked about a bunch as well. Uh, just to start it off, for me, there was a lot of times I noticed when David asked for God's guidance, and it was almost exclusively military-based. Like, what do I do in this military situation? Um, and I was like, probably would have been a good opportunity in the whole Bathsheba story to get God's guidance at some step in there. And he doesn't, and he doesn't do it ever. Uh, and there's, you know, God voice is nowhere to be found in that story. So that was something that stood out to me. Um, so anyway, take a second. Uh, we'll take uh, three to four minutes for this first question. Uh, what stood out to you? Something Frank said or something that you thought about this week? Let's go ahead. <laughs> 